Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I am your host, Tatiana Kosesinov. This week, I am so excited and very, very honored to have as my guest, Rolin McCready. Rolin is Executive Vice President and Director of Research at the HeartMath Institute in the US. He is a psychophysiologist whose interests include the physiology of emotion. His critical research on heart rate variability and heart rhythm coherence has gained international attention in the scientific community and is helping to change long-held perceptions about the heart's role in health, behavior, performance, and the quality of life. So first of all, Roland, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. My pleasure. So let's get stuck right in. I love this subject. I myself uh, am an ad heart facilitator. I use the techniques from heart mass all of the time because I find them so incredibly useful. But let's start off right at the very beginning. Now, I think most people out there still think that the heart is a pump. It's, it's a piece of plumbing that just pushes blood around the system. But you know that that's not the case. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's not involved in... in <laughs> of course it is, yeah. It's just the perspective that it's much more than that. Right. Uh, I wouldn't say it's not that. Uh, although there are actually people um, fairly renowned and uh, in-depth thinkers in, in cardiology, cardiologists who are arguing that the heart actually is not a pump uh, in, in the context that there's no way that the heart can pump the blood through all the vessels and the things that it has to do, that there's other mechanisms at play. But that's a different topic. Um, so our, our work really focuses on the communication between the heart and the brain and how the activity of the heart influences brain function in some rather profound ways and, and also is very much involved in helping to create our emotional experience. In other words, the texture, the feeling of an emotion. Um, so that would be maybe a way to bridge into the topic. Right. So um, that's, a, that's really the, a, the basis of, of what I want to talk to you about is, is this communication between the heart and the brain. So now we're shifting more from a sort of fluid dynamics into electrical systems and nerves and uh, transmission to and from the brain. Can you talk about that? Because I think traditionally, we have thought that the brain is the major instructing organ that sends signals to everything else. But as far as the heart's concerned, that's a two-way conversation, right? Uh, indeed, indeed. And well, in fact, what the, the topic we're talking about was the foundations of psychology in the early years. Um, a guy named William James, some have heard of him, pretty famous guy, is considered, considered the father of psychology, actually. Uh, knew a lot about this, and that was kind of the dominant paradigm in, in the context that the brain really is interpreting the signals from the external world and from what's called interception from within the body to create its perception of reality and so on. And that shifted in the well, night, early, late 1920s, early 1930s to this brain-dominant paradigm. And this was a time when we were literally just discovering the first hormone you know, a neurotransmitter, very little was known and some experiments were done that we now know are kind of silly to look back and, and think of the uh, shift that that created in, in the paradigm that this idea that the, if you could cut the head off, you know, theoretically and give it the blood flow it needed, that it would be fine, you know, but the body was there just to carry the brain around. 
Uh, nobody believes that anymore. It's utter nonsense. Um, as we know, what goes on in the body has profound uh, effects on mental function, cognitive uh, functions, or emotional experience, and, and all of these types of things now. But the heart is especially um, relevant and important in that discussion. And what a lot of people don't know, even in the medical field, um, and this may sound like some new discovery, you know, that, that the, and that is that the heart sends far more information through the nerves, the neural system, uh, than the brain sends to the heart. And uh, that may sound like heresy or like, oh, how could we not know that? Well, that's actually been known since the late 1800s. Uh, it's basic anatomy. And in the 1970s, primarily, uh, late 60s, but mainly through the 1970s, a lot of research was done that found that the, I'll call it the quality uh, for right now, of the signals of the, that the heart was sending upstairs, you know, through the afferent or ascending neural pathways, uh, had profound effects on brain function and many, many areas of brain function. And uh, two terms were coined back then to describe the effects, although the mechanisms weren't really understood then. And those were called cortical inhibition, right? The cortex, top part of our brain where we get paid to go to work for, uh, was either inhibited and not basically didn't work very well, um, or cortical facilitation was the other term. So the, when the heart had certain types of signals, it facilitated brain function. And not only that, it, it appeared that somehow the heart actually knew ahead of time what the brain was going to need to do in the future and was prepping the brain so that it was ready for more in a more um, uh, facilitated state to deal with what it had to deal with in the future. So this was quite a bit of a, well, in fact, the most famous hypothesis in the field, in my field, psychophysiology, was that the heart has a causal role in modulating perception. And this created, there's hundreds of papers written about this back in the 70s and 80s and so on. It's an interesting read to read through the older literature because they were talking about the heart as though it had a mind of its own. And of course, this created quite a storm um, of, you know, how can this be? And, you know, a lot of anti, you know, uh, this can't be and so on. Anyway, those researchers were proven true, were correct over time and won all kinds of, you know, career awards and so on. They've, they've passed on now, of course, but. Anyway, so that's sort of the background that our, our research kind of builds upon, um, if that helps make any sense. We, so we now know the mechanisms uh, of, of how that all works pretty clearly. Could you maybe outline those? Obviously, we don't have the time to go into extreme detail, but could you kind yeah, of... Yeah, well, so what, probably what might be a good way to start into to that, to make it simple, um, is where we came in in the early 90s, our research in uh, looking at um, the physiological correlates, we'll call them, how does the body tend to um, react or behave during different emotional states. And we were, through some of our own experience and things, kind of uh, new to put more attention on the activity of the heart than is traditionally done at that time. And this is a time period that there was very little work done in really any of the sciences on the effect of positive or you know, what we call, would call regenerative emotions, things like love, appreciation, compassion. I mean, everybody's doing that now, but at that time, there were maybe three papers in the literature on positive emotions, research literature, very, very, very few. This was many years before the positive psychology movement that's happened. Anyway, what we 
found through the, those early years was that it actually was the heart and specifically the rhythms of the heart that was most um, consistently and reliably associated with reflecting emotional states, positive or negative, you know, or, or what we call depleting or renewing now these days. And it was the, what's now called heart rate variability, uh, which is the beat to beat change in heart rate and the patterns of those, those rhythms that was the most reflective of emotions. And that was kind of cool back then because, oh, this is neat. We have a non-invasive way to tell what somebody's feeling, right? Because like something like frustration looks different than anxiety, for example. They have kind of specific patterns. But what was really intriguing was that when we felt good, something like appreciation or compassion or kindness, the heart didn't just change its pattern. It really flipped into a different kind of functional mode that we now call co heart coherence uh, that was reflected in the heart rhythm. So the, then that led down the path of, well, okay, so what? And, and is there a physiological reason for this other than it being a nice, convenient way to tell what somebody's feeling? More, much more so than any other measures that we were using, like brain waves and skin conductance and all these types of things. As it turns out, yes, uh, but it was the answer to that question. And it kind of answered some of the mechanistic issues that were discovered earlier on that I was referring to. So the quality, or we'll call it the pattern of the rhythms, they, as I mentioned, the heart sends more to the brain, right? Well, it goes directly to many, almost all the major brain centers, these neural signals. One of them that explains how it um, affects our performance of brain function, there, there are two main pathways that's probably relevant to talk about today, but one is to a part of the brain called the thalamus. And the thalamus is at the very core of our brain. We only have one of those. Um, it, most brain areas, you have you know, the left and right sides, but uh, the thalamus is at the very core. And it has a lot of important functions. One of those is that it literally synchronizes the electrical activity of all the neurons in the brain. And brain has to be able to synchronize its activity to even be conscious and awake, right? It's like what happens in head injuries where people go into a coma is the neural connections from the thalamus to the different parts of the brain that synchronize the, the, the electrical activity get uh, damaged. And if that without those, if those get um, damaged, we, we, we're in a, a coma forever, right? Because the brain can't synchronize itself, basically. Anyway, that's when you have these, what we now call incoherent states or the patterns that you would see associated with frustration or impatience, these types of things, those, when those uh, neural patterns impinge on the thalamus, um, they inhibit or interfere with its ability to synchronize the electrical activity of the entire brain. Hence the term cortical inhibition. Right. So it's, I'm kind of simplifying it, but this is the basic mechanisms we know now. And that the, front part of the brain, uh, with frontal cortex, prefrontal cortex, these areas are uh, what really make humans humans. And the main kind of function that that part of the brain gives us, uh, one of my mentors, a guy named Carl Prebrum, he coined the term executive functions, uh, but it also uh, describes what they really give us is foresight. Mm -hmm. The ability to understand how our actions and behaviors in the now will affect the future. So that lets us to have planning, right? Setting goals, appreciating when we reach a goal, uh, abstract thinking, discrimination of appropriate behavior. All of these things are 
under that rubric of foresight. So those, the kind of a simple way of thinking this is actually how it is. Those are pretty refined abilities and capacities. And the neural structures that underlie those abilities have to be in sync to perform that well. So when we're in an incoherent state, they get taken offline first. Right. right. So that's why, it, and this is very fast acting stuff we're talking about now. Uh, you probably never had this experience yourself, but a lot of people might might be able to relate to this where you're, you're talking with somebody and they say or do something that just kind of, you know, kind of pisses you off a little bit. You know, you get emotionally upset. And that's we never find happened to me. Never, never happened. <laughs> Right. So it probably never happened more than once with the same person around the same issue either. <laughs> well, this is really a classic example of cortical inhibition, you know, where we find ourselves a minute later or even a few seconds later going, oh, my God, I can't believe I just said that. You know, because it usually causes more stress and we've hurt somebody's feelings and probably didn't even mean it anyway. And why um, all email programs should have a have that thing that when yeah. you press send, it should say, are you sure afterwards? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so basically what, what, what we now know is when we, we're feeling something like frustration or impatience or anger, especially, that that creates the neural patterns in the heart that then basically inhibit brain function. So we say the thing we regret later, right? That causes more stress and so on. Now, on the other hand, if we're able to kind of take a pause between that reaction, and shift into what we now call a heart coherent state. That's a very different neural signal impinging on the thalamus and it actually facilitates neural synchronization of the entire brain. So we actually have more options available. It feels like the internal experience, there's more time between the response and the, you know, what we then say or do. So we have more uh, ability and capacity to make a better choice, have more awareness of what we're about to, to say or do so that's you know we could go on and on about that and the importance of that but that's one and the other uh direct neural pathway that's relevant here is to uh, parts of the brain there's two of these called the amygdala uh, which we won't go into a lot of details but the amygdala is very much involved in its associated circuitry um, and centers in emotional experience you know creating the feeling of a feeling right as it turns out, there's direct neural pathways from the heart to the amygdala. In fact, the cells in the core, the very center of the, the amygdala is literally synchronized to the heartbeat. So whatever the rhythms and patterns of the heart, the amygdala is getting that exact pattern. And so it's kind of pattern matching and looking uh, to help literally create our, the texture of an emotion, the feeling of an emotion. Fascinating. The, the cortical stuff on, on top of that is labeling it, you know, saying I feel anxious or you know, uh, upset or I feel good. Um, so it's kind of really turning a lot of the understandings of how the brain works and emotions kind of, you could say upside down, but really right side up um, to, to give it a little bit more uh, understanding there. Hope that made sense. In the way absolutely. I it makes absolute sense. Let's go back a little bit. You, you talked about heart rate variability. Can you um, explain that a little, a little better? Because I think most people are very familiar with the concept of heart rate, but sure. not heart rate variability. Right. Well, good. Of course, heart rate is just simply how many times did the heart beat in a minute? Right. But if you look a little closer and you find that in a healthy person, that the heart rate is changing with each and every heartbeat. 
So heart rate variabilities, we have to get in a lot more refined and measure the time between each and every pair of heartbeats. Okay, and what you find is that there's a surprising range of variability in beat-to-beat -beat heart rate. So most people wouldn't be aware of that or see it because if you look at heart rate on most heart rate monitors or hospital, it looks like a flat line that's slowly moving. But that's because it's all averaged out, right? They're just taking an average, you know, every, you know, so many seconds, every 10 seconds, you take a value, average it, and make a flat line. But that's not at all what's really happening in the body. So as it turns out, the um, heart rate variability, without it, we wouldn't have a heart rhythm. Right, so if the time between each pair of heartbeats was always the same, it did the, there'd just be a flat line in terms of the, there would be no rhythm. Right? And it, um, that is not a good thing. In fact, many you know not that many years ago, really, in medical history, we, it used to be taught and thought that a steady heart rate or rhythm was a sign of good health. Well, it's absolutely wrong. It's the, it's the opposite. We without good healthy of this natural variability that if we lose that variability, that is a strong uh, risk factor for future health problems, like death. <laughs> yeah, that's a major risk factor. But but, all, but many many for, forms of, of future health problems if our if the heart rhythm is or the variability is low. So it's kind of exploding now. There are lots of apps out there that measure HRV or heart rate variability and so on. So alert. Not everybody is aware of it yet, but it's really gaining a lot of popularity and understanding because it is such an important measure of, of our health. Um, so we, there's two two levels then. Uh, we have the most of this natural variability when we're young, and it declines as we age. In fact, measuring how much of this variability we have is one of the best, if not the best, measure of the aging process we currently have. All right, so. Uh, in fact, here in the lab, we can measure your variability, heart rate variability, and you tell within a couple of years how old you are. If you're if we're on a healthy trajectory, uh, but if we have a lot of stress in life that accumulates over you know months and years, or a, a certain types of health problems, disease processes, the variability is lower than it should be for your age, and that's what's the strong predictor of future health problems. If it's lower than it should be. So that's one level. Then the, the I kind of was talking earlier about the uh, so there's the how much, but then there's also the the pattern of the variability, and that's this is where a picture is worth a thousand words. But if you kind of plot the variability and look at the kind of like the wave of it, the waveform, it, when we're um, feeling things like frustration or impatience, anxiety, the rhythm looks almost looks like an earthquake graph. You know, very chaotic, right? Yeah, whereas when we're feeling really good, you know, or positive feelings, appreciation and you know, kindness, these types of things, the rhythm is very much like a sine wave, a smooth rolling hills kind of pattern. So and that's, um, those are the signals going to the brain. So once we understood that, that allowed us, allowed us to develop a number of tools and techniques, as we call them, that help people shift into a coherent state pretty much any time they need to, right, at will. Uh, with some practice, of course, mm -hmm. and that so that's become very popular trainings now and, and developing uh, ways that you can tool little uh, devices. Uh, one's called Inner Balance that works with smartphones that allows you to see your your heart rhythms in real time. So you can practice techniques to be able to shift into coherence, right? Which then has I think there's 400 plus studies now showing that getting into coherent states has a wide range of health benefits and performance benefits. 
So we work a lot in athletics because one of the, by getting the brain in sync, that improves reaction times and coordination. So athletes love this because they know if they get coherent, they're going to perform better. Uh, we also work a lot in, in circles like law enforcement, right? So that by getting coherent, an officer can maintain their composure, right? You know, in very stressful situations. So uh, this coherent or incoherent states, probably worth mentioning here, is not the same as relaxation. I was just about to, to ask about that. Yep. Yeah, because relaxation by definition, if we like talking physiologically, means you're lowering your heart rate. Mm -hmm. You know, you're disassociated. You're not really doing much. You're kind of sleeping, taking a nap, you know. Um, it's, it's really ultimate relaxation. But that's not um, – relaxation actually decreases performance. I mean, I guarantee you if you're in an athletic team, the coach is probably not getting the, the team together and saying, all right, guys, let's chill out. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. Um, no. But so sometimes we need a higher heart rate. We've got to take care of business, right? We have to do things in the world. But you, you can be in a nice – you can be at a higher heart rate and still be coherent or incoherent, right? So by using the techniques, you can be taking care of business, but still be coherent and composed while you're doing that. Right? On the other hand, you can be relaxed from a physiological perspective, lower heart rate, and your variability pattern still very incoherent. Right. right. Again, you've never probably done this, but it could be end of the day, you're sipping on your glass of wine or whatever, and rehashing, telling the story of, of how so-and-so did so-and-so that really upset you, and you can't believe they did that, and next time you're going to do so-and-so right? Relaxed, but very incoherent and still draining a lot of energy and still inhibiting your, your inner functions, kind of having your nervous system out of sync. Right. One thing just to clarify is that you, you spoke about having um, the ability to have a, a wide range of variability as being healthy. And yet, if you go into heart coherence, that would sort of seem to indicate that you actually restrict this variability. So how can that be good for you? It sounds like it's almost contradictory. No, no, because when you're in a coherent state, you have a lot of variability. It's just the pattern of it. Right. Is, 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 is very different. So you're, you're having heart rate accelerations and deaccelerations that over time that are, that are basically what it's ultimately showing you is that the inner nervous system, the activity in our nervous system is synchronized. Right. Right. So to, to understand that a little better, there's, how do I say this in a simple way? Uh, a really important part of our physiology is called the autonomic nervous system. Mm -hmm. And that's what regulates all the internal body's functions that we don't have to think about. You know, well over 95% of the stuff going on, hormonal, immune regulation, heart rate, all this stuff is being controlled by the autonomic nervous system. And it's two halves to that system. One's called the sympathetic and the other, the parasympathetic. And they come from different parts of the brain. They're sourced and have different, different neural pathways, but they both talk to a lot of the different glands and organs like the heart. So the heart's a really neat way to, to, to be able to see the activity uh, of, in the nervous system because the heart's beating on its own but it's innervated or connected to both branches. So when the activity in the two branches is out of sync with each other, it creates these incoherent heart rhythms. So a great analogy that might help here is, is like you're driving your car, right? 
and people who've taught teenagers how to drive can probably relate to this, but uh, if you are, have one foot on the accelerator, but you're riding the brake with the other foot at the same time, right, that can create a jerky ride mm-hmm. and use a lot more gas, <laughs> not very comfortable for the passenger or the other drivers. Well, that's a, it's a great analogy for what's going on in our body when we're incoherent. And it's showing us that those two branches of the nervous system, the sympathetics like the accelerator and the parasympathetic like the brakes, are not coordinated together. They're out of sync. Right? So that's, it's, uh, that helps. So when we're coherent, they're in sync. Right? And they're working in a harmonious way together. So it's really optimizing energy use in the body. So the body's getting a lot more done and using a lot less energy. Right. Um, I recently interviewed um, Professor uh, David Peters from the University of Westminster, and um, I know he's he's very much part of, of uh, heart math. Uses a lot of heart math techniques, and we talked a lot of objectively about resilience. So, can you talk a little bit more about how actually learning coherence to get, to get the heart into coherence actually also helps you build resilience? Um, sure. Well, ultimately. Uh, resilience is something we, we actually, our, our programs are that we actually teach are these days in a resilience model. And so that's, again, I said, we work a lot with law enforcement and, and people who care about resilience, but the way, I think the best way to think about resilience to start off with is the, is how much energy we have. Right. But not just, so we don't just talk about peak performance and so on. Not, not there's anything wrong with that but it's performance over time, right? How do we sustain our energy? Uh, so I'll often ask, you know, crowds that I address and things, do you have as much energy at the end of the day as you would like? Or would you like more energy at the end of the day? And most, oh, everybody says, yeah, I want more energy at the end of the day. So uh, when we talk about resilience, it really does relate to energy. So physical energy, we can kind of get that, right? It's, you know, how strong we are, our flexibility, and if we're going to increase our physical resilience, we, there's ways we can do that. So let's say that uh, maybe we can walk three miles, whatever your, your kind of baseline is. If we want to increase our capacity, we kind of have to stretch past it a little bit. Maybe we walk three mile, three and a quarter miles, <sighs> you know, push past it, and then get proper rest, you know, recover energy, and do that again the next time and the next time. And it, before long, three and a half miles is your new baseline, right? So we've increased our energy capacity so we have those reserves to draw on when we need it as a way of thinking of that. Well, it works the same way. We also have emotional energy and mental energy, right? And and some other types. These are literally the kind of things that can become depleted and we can also learn how to increase their capacity, right? But then they overlap with each other. For example, um, a lot of people might know that, the, you know, when you get really good old fashioned anger blow up, you just get really mad about something or somebody, how you feel physically, maybe a half hour later, you know, most people like, like depleted, even though they didn't do anything, mm-hmm. you know, but so they, they do affect each other. So the metaphor that we use in our resilience programs is to think of resilience as how much as our energy capacity, like an inner battery. Right. So then if we're going to build and sustain resilience, the real issue is how do we become smarter about how we expend our energy? 
and renew it and recover it? How do we charge our inner battery and, and not wasting the energy we do have? So how do most people waste energy unnecessarily? It turns out that it's actually in the emotional side of things, the emotional energy. Um, things like drama, you know, a lot of people can relate to that where we just, you know, something happened. I kind of referred to it a little bit earlier. We, we got to tell everybody else about it and we have the same emotion. And so the, in reality, from a physiological perspective, it's our emotions that run the show in terms of the body. And this is actually really easy to see in the lab here. We can wire you up to whatever, you know, look at your blood pressure and your hormones and neural activity and all this, these, whatever we measure. And it can have you thinking, you know, until you're blue in the face. I mean, you know, doing subtractions and thinking about stuff. Not much happens physiologically. I mean, yeah, there are changes, but yeah, pretty small. But once you trigger an emotion, right, you get mad about it or you really like it, you know, where there's an emotion, big changes happen quick, right, in our nervous system and our blood pressure, our, hom our hormonal activity. So it's the emotions that really run the show that really drive physiological activity. So that, and that's really about energy, right? So we have certain emotions that amp up the nervous system that says, okay, we need to expend more energy. So for example, a great, a classic example is we're in traffic and we get frustrated and impatient. Well, those feelings set in motion at least 1400 biochemical changes in the body that have to do with energy use. Right. right? But we're sitting in a car. <laughs> so we've just used a lot of energy unnecessarily there because getting frustrated in traffic does not make the traffic move any faster. All it does is drain our energy. So you, we can think of traffic jams literally or figuratively. You know, you, you mentioned email. You open your email and there's that name. You haven't even opened it yet for a lot of people. You've, you've had that same trigger. You know, so you're driving in and burning extra energy. So becoming more intelligent about, well, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm going to manage that emotion, right? Is really kind of the key to resilience over time. Because if you think of how many times during a typical day, we have those kind of internal under what you can think of as under the radar triggers. And for a lot of people, it's so familiar that it's under the radar. We don't even think about it, right? It's just the way we operate, you know, the frustrations, the impatience, the anxiety, the feelings of overwhelm. Those are all triggering the physiology to utilize energy that don't really serve us. Right. And on the other hand, so that, so it's really about self-regulation in the moment through day-to-day -day life and shifting into coherence is a great way to, for the brain to get facilitated to know, oh yeah, I have choice here. Right? and actually feel better at the same time because of the, the circuits going to the amygdala. I think that's actually probably quite an aha revelation to start off with, that you can actually regulate emotions. I think most people feel their emotions regulate them rather than the other way around. Right. Well, that's the problem because we really haven't been taught how. Right. And, and, and in fact, even some of the scientific writings don't serve people well. I mean, even current... I'm, some relatively current neuroscience books and things you read talk about emotions, something that happened to us that we have no control over. And that that's just utter nonsense. 
Um, it's probably true if you're studying a rat, you know, or mice and mazes and things that that would probably be true. But as humans, we do have choice. Um, we just have to learn how to exercise it and exercise that muscle of self-regulation. Right. So when you go into a period and you've, you've used some of these techniques, some heart mass techniques in order to get into a state of coherence, does that coherence only last while you're doing the technique or does it extend once you've stopped doing it? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great question. And so if we're looking physiologically, you know, what the rhythms of the heart, it, it, if we get up and go climb stairs and interact, you won't see it in the heart rhythms because the, of the physiological demands for blood pressure and these types mm -hmm. of things. But that does have a carryover effect of being in a, a coherent state. And we actually call that operational coherence. In other words, we can operate, we can go about our day, you know, maybe we, we reboot physiologically, shift into coherence, you know, a few times a day to, to reground, restabilize the nervous system, the brain and nervous system. So we have that carryover effect. Uh, so we can still be more composed and, and emotionally coherent and self-regulated, even though our heart rhythms may not be in that, that moment. Right, right. Um, what effects does it actually, what health benefits does, does having regular um, heart coherence practice, let's call it that? Um, yeah, well, I, I think- I know you, there's a ton of literature out there, but maybe you could just summarize. Yeah, I think what I'm gonna say is I'm gonna, uh, so heart coherence, looking at the rhythms, is facilitating self-regulation. So I'm going to flip that, if I may, and say as we learn to better self-regulate and shifting to coherence, it really helps us self-regulate mm -hmm. in the moment. So we're better using our energy. So if I put it that way, I could say there are hundreds of studies, as you, as you mentioned, uh, so the benefits are, are across a very wide range. So for it lowers blood pressure, we know that over, you know, if you practice them regularly, we have dramatic shifts in hormonal balance uh, to, that would be associated with less stress and improved health, long-term health outcomes. So those are some of those kind of measures. Um, there's many studies in clinical populations, you know, with diabetes and heart failure and things that ha have improved outcomes. I think the, the for most people, Probably the more relevant is we have less stress, right? And we feel better and we perform better. So many studies, and uh, we do a lot of work in hospitals, nursing, you know, in staffs of hospitals. And it's amazing how many um, hospital staff report basically being exhausted and major levels of fatigue. Uh, just because of the job demands and not good energy management. And what we see there, and this is across thousands and thousands of people now, is that the um, fatigue is cut in half. Wow. In that's kind of that's a significant people. number. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, and they, they basically feel better. They have more. Uh, well, another thing we measure a lot is the, the ability to self-regulate. So they're actually more, more in charge of their emotional diet, I like to call it. <laughs> so they, they have more appreciation and, you know, those kinds of feelings and, uh, um, basically, they're happier and have increased well-being. Um, better decision-making studies in schools show that uh, children get higher test scores, and which is important. But I think even more importantly is that their behaviors start changing, so they start getting along with each other better. So there's uh, definitely a, a wide range of improvements in the social side of things. 
right? So we, um, less violence and less, you know, more cooperation, collaboration, these types of things. Um, in athletics, better performance. Uh, I know a couple world records that have been set after athletes got coherence training, these types of things. So they say that it's, it's pretty broad, a range of benefits. I, I really can't think of anything that doesn't, that we're getting ourselves more stable and coherent couldn't actually help uh, in whatever the outcomes that people care about are. Right. A lot of those um, things that you just talked about um, echo in my mind uh, being the results of, for example, active mindfulness practice. Have you had a look at, at somebody who combines the two? So mindfulness practices and heart coherence? Uh, yeah. And there are people doing that. And, and uh, just, I, I'm, was a, before I discovered and got involved in HeartMath, sort of the founders, I've been a practitioner of meditation and mindfulness for over 15 years myself. So I think I have a right to talk about it. Absolutely. <laughs> and actually the first step, even in heart math techniques and approaches is we first have to be have more self-awareness. You know, if we don't know what's going on, if we don't have awareness of what our thoughts, emotions and behaviors are, we can't change them. We can't right. self-regulate them. And mindfulness is really about being able to observe and become more conscious of what we're thinking, feeling and so on. So, um, there's not really a competition there because we say you, we have step one of heart math is, is that we just don't call it mindfulness. We call it more becoming self-aware, self-awareness. Uh, then the next step is more the, how to self-regulate, how to make shifts in our physiology and then our, our thoughts and emotions. So we become more kind of the captains of our own ship, so to speak. So we're not just beat around by them. So yes, uh, for a lot of people, mindfulness is a good first step because we do have to develop self-awareness. Uh, but the the missing ingredient in a lot of programs is that next step of self how how we self regulate uh, in the moment and I'm but I, and that's so important. There's a lot of stress management stuff is about things you can do at the end of the day to help recover energy and you know relax and so on. And yeah, and that's important. But why not become more intelligent about how we're wasting energy to begin with, so we don't have to do so much recovery, which we never really can do anyway. Right. Right. Another thing that I find absolutely fascinating is the fact that um, we can actually have effects on other people around us. Mm -hmm. um, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? About first of all, perhaps start off with the fact that there's a there's a field that's generated by a beating heart. Anybody who's done basic physics will remember that you know flow of electrical sure. current makes a magnetic field, right? Uh, exactly. Yeah. Well, of course, we everybody knows we can affect others around us through our body language and right. You know, a nice meeting or flow, and somebody comes in all upset, and you know wants you to know it and feel that way too. How that can disrupt things. Um, so that's the obvious, but, but what we're talking about now is a more subtle level of that. And so the, every time the heart beats, it generates a magnetic field. Now, okay, so people might think, uh-oh, Dr. McCready's going new age on us here. Nothing <laughs> wrong with that. No, but when you, so when you go to the doctor's office and they put electrodes across your chest to measure, or, or your brain, to measure the electrocardiogram or your, your brain waves, what those electrodes are measuring is current flow. That's why it's called the electrocardiogram. You're measuring electricity. And the heart generates by far the largest source of rhythmic electrical energy in the body, by far. 
whenever, as you were indicating, uh, whenever there's current flow, we create uh, what's called a magnetic field. I mean, this is basic physics. Mm -hmm. So to measure that uh, magnetic field, you use a different type of instrument called a magnetometer, right? So you can say, well, how do I know the heart's measuring, making a magnetic field? We can measure it, right, with magnetometers, very standard devices that measure magnetic fields. So the kind of to make this story maybe simple for people, yeah, I love cell phone analogies because everybody has one. Right? If we get out our, our cell phone, I actually have mine laying here now, right? and I make a call, well, how, how does the information get from my phone to the cell tower and then back to the other people? Right? Well, we use electromagnetic fields to carry information, the voice, the text message, whatever. And the reason that a phone works inside is because of the magnetic component, which goes through the walls and so on. So the magnetic field generated by the heart, the beating heart, radiates easily outside of the body, goes right through the tissues, and we can measure externally. So with these magnetometers, you can measure the heart's field about three feet or about a meter from the body. And that's the sensitivity of the equipment. They obviously go farther. And you can measure a brainwave with the same device about an inch away. So we can see when we're talking energetics or the magnetics here that the heart's by far the big player. And I'm an ex, before I became a psychophysiologist, I was, used to work for Motorola. I was a communication engineer. So using very similar techniques that we would use to actually look at the signal being carried by the magnetic field of my phone, you can do the same thing with the magnetic field by the heart and, and look at the information patterns being carried by the field. And you can quite easily see now using these techniques that when we're feeling frustration or, you know, patience, anger, that's very different information being carried by the field than when we're in those positive states, appreciation, care, compassion, so on that I've been mentioning. You can actually see it. So we know the field rate is there, it's real, we can measure it and detect the information being carried by it, right? So then the next step in that line of research, this is all published in peer-reviewed journals and so on, by the way, um, that our nervous systems are, are exquisitely tuned to these other biologically generated fields. So we're not only radiating them, we're also detectors of the fields from other people. So bottom line, what this means is that there's a, a subtle, often under the conscious radar, communication system that's always going on between people when they're you know in close proximity you know and it's not just three feet we've done studies now that you know much farther away you can measure physiological synchronization and, and this communication going on between people and this one of the ways this manifests i mean there's many ways but a, a common one i think a lot of people experience is you might be having a conversation with someone and, or, and this can be done where you block any cues of body language and things like that. And they're saying something, but you're feeling they mean or are saying something else. Right? Have you ever had that experience? Often, yeah. <laughs> right, well, that, that's a disconnect, right? It's um, a lack of alignment between what's being said and what you feel that's going on. And that can have a huge impact on pro in communication problems. Because oftentimes, and I've actually watched this happen, people walk away repeating what they, not what the person actually said, but what they felt from the person energetically through this other communication system. So it creates these mixed messages, right? And there's, I mean, and it may be nothing, and again, this is unconscious, it may be that the person that's communicating had a phone call right before the conversation with some bad news. 
right? It had nothing to do with you, but that, you know, they're feeling that and that's getting communicated. Right. right. So, or this has, this has like massive implications. I mean, uh, um, as I mentioned to you, um, when I wrote, um, a lot of my listeners are, are therapists and actively engaged in, um, in very, very intense, emotionally intense sure. interactions with, with their clients. And I think it's a really fascinating fact because, it, you know, a, a lot of people talk about the placebo effect and so on and so forth. And that it's actually, you know, the, uh, the, the practitioner that's actually making the difference this is all part of that, isn't it? So, I mean, the, the, the state that, that the actual um, practitioner in, is in can really influence the outcome of the patient, right? Yeah, absolutely it can. In fact, there's uh, several studies now, again, all published in peer-reviewed literature, that studies that have shown that uh, one of the first ones, that when we're at, when in a coherent state, that that can have a measurable lifting effect on other people. Right. Okay. Not everybody all the time, but, but in general, that, that it has a, an effect that can lift others. So one of the best things we can do is maintain our coherence when we're interacting with somebody else, especially if they're having a hard time or in a therapeutic relationship. And that keeps us more neutral you know, not as being as affected, especially people who are oversensitive to these kind of energetic things. Learning how to maintain our coherence when we're in those kind of settings is, I won't say, it's kind of protective in a way, but I don't mean like putting up white light or something. It's stabilizing our nervous system. So we're not as affected by incoherence of others. But at the same time, and I think of this as our personal field environment, right? When we're in a more coherent state, it is creating a field environment that can help lift others. I mean, people still have choice. It's not like, you know, you force them to do anything, but it gives them something else to synchronize to, to help lift in a measurable way oftentimes. Right? And, not only that, when, when both people are able to kind of be more coherent, you actually start seeing that there's a synchronization in the rhythms between people. And that's what moves us more into what we, we call social coherence. Right. Right. And in fact, there are several studies done in the therapeutic relationship that show that it is when they're in the moments of physiological synchronization that the patient actually feels like the therapist was hearing them and connected to them. And uh, one study that was done at, a, at Harvard showed the more moments of physiological synchronization, the better the treatment outcomes were for, for those patients who actually felt that and perceived that. Um, right. That it did trace back to the, the actual measurement of physiological synchronization between them. So all therapists out there should make sure that they get heart coherent, not only to encourage their own resilience, but also to help their patients. Yeah, absolutely. I, in fact, in our, our clinical training certification program, we actually do uh, teach the, the therapist to do that or strongly encourage. Before you see the patient, take a, at least a minute or two and really focus on yourself. Get yourself coherent before they walk in or, or you engage with them so that you have that carryover effect. You're grounding yourself into a coherent centered state right we're really kind of skimming over the surface of a lot of these things because we don't have the time sadly to go into into much detail i could talk to you all day but um one of the other things which i i find fascinating um about a lot of the work that you're doing is uh not uh, moving even the next step up from social coherence into global coherence um can you talk a little bit about that because i think that's super important 
Yeah, sure. Um, I think it is too. I think it's more important than we currently understand. So, uh, there we're really um, at a high level looking at the interaction, if you will, between humanity and the Earth's magnetic systems. So as it turns out, um, well, to, to do research, we have to measure things, of course. So we've been installing a what's called the Global Coherence Monitoring System. And this is a network of extremely sensitive magnetometers that measure magnetic fields. But in this case, they're designed to measure the, the magnetic fields of Earth. Uh, but the magnetic, the moving magnetic fields, not just the static or stationary ones, like most magnetometers that are out there measure. So we had to put this system in ourselves because the other magnetometers, there are many magnetometers out there, but they measure something different. And they're, they're more about protecting satellites and power grids and things for measuring field disturbance. So the we're really studying the interaction between the Earth's magnetic fields and humanity and humans. And I say humanity because our studies are now showing this is really a global uh, thing. And as it turns out, um, it's really fascinating, some of the, the work that we're uncovering with this. And just to give a little background here, uh, I think one of the fascinating things that is, is becoming clear. So if you think of Earth, I wish I had a little prop here, but we'll use my fist as Earth. Uh, we've got the geomagnetic field, right, with the fields, you know, north and south pole. The thing, the, the magnetic, the geomagnetic field, the pure magnetic field. And that's what our compass is tuned into to say that's north and south and so on, right? Well, those, uh, if you think back to science class, when we got to dump iron filings on a glass plate, remember that, right? You put a magnet under it and they all magically line up in lines, right? It wasn't a homogeneous black blob. They, they, they show lines that show the shape of the magnetic field around whatever particular magnet you have, right? So Earth has a toroidal shape. It's all around the Earth, a big donut, right, with the North and South Pole. And the mag so those are called magnetic field lines where the little iron filings line up on. That's, they're real things, right? And so the field lines of Earth, which extend you know, many, many thousands and thousands of miles out into space, and thank God it's what protects Earth from cosmic rays and all the, the stuff that would blow away our atmosphere and the water very quickly without the, the magnetic field. But the field lines literally act like guitar strings. And when they get plucked, they vibrate. And what's vibrating the field lines of Earth is the solar wind rushing by and plucking the strings. Okay, I'm gonna oversimplify this a little bit, but that's basically what's going on. Earth is turning and the um, solar wind is rushing by at a million miles per hour plucking the strings. Well, the resonant frequency, just like a guitar string, has a resonant frequency. When you pluck it, it vibrates. and has a note or frequency. Well, Earth's magnetic field lines doing the same thing. And as it turns out, these field line resonances, as they're called, vibrate at the same rhythms as our heart and nervous system. In fact, one of the primary resonant frequencies of these field line resonances is exactly the same frequency as the coherent human heart rhythm. I mean, yeah. it's a, when you think about it, it's just like amazing that our, our biological systems are tuned to Earth. So the reason that's important, also back to science class, most people got to play with tuning forks, right, and, and resonance. 
you know, you tap one tuning fork, and if the other one's tuned to the same frequency, it starts vib magically vibrating with it, right? So in, the, in that case, it's air molecules that transmit the energy between the two, showing, though, that if they vibrate at the same frequency, you can transfer energy and information between them. Well, it works exactly the same way with magnetic fields. You just don't need the air molecules. Again, my cell phone example again. So sitting around you right there where you are and me here, there's probably hundreds if not thousands of magnetic fields radiating from cell phones carrying information, you know, the voice, the text. Well, how does our phone pick out the frequency or the magnetic field to transfer internet information to the cell tower? You quite literally tune the cell phone to be resonant with the frequency of interest. And as soon as you do that, boom, the energy and information is transferred from these invisible wave magnetic fields around us right into the phone and you're having your conversation. So what I'm saying here is we're, we are, our biological systems are operating at the same frequency as Earth's vibrational systems. So at least from a, a kind of just basic physics perspective, we have the capacity to transfer energy and information between us and the Earth's fields. Fascinating. So that, what implications does that have? Oh, uh, well, I don't think we uh, even are beginning to understand them all yet. And some of the studies we've been doing in the last few years are having people wear recorders that, that measure their electrocardiogram, uh, but ambulatory for 24 hours a day, every day for, in some case, five months. So we're able to look and see. Uh, and so heart rate variability, as I kind of alluded to earlier, really reflects the activity and the dynamic activity within our nervous system. Right. So it gives us a window into that. And what we're seeing, it, well, the first, these studies started asking the question, can we see changes in our nervous system activity that correlate with the, you know, these background magnetic rhythms? And yes, there's all kinds of significant interrelations. But what, where the surprise came is when we took these groups of people, and now we've done this globally with groups all over the world, um, is we found that their heart rhythms were literally synchronizing to the earth, to the rhythms in the earth's field. So, which means that we're often in sync with each other globally because we're synchronizing to the rhythms in the earth at a level that we would never have thought possible. So we're what, what these studies now, the third one now are telling us is that we're far more in tune with and in sync with the earth's rhythms. than I would have ever dreamed. Uh, you know, you hear a lot of people say, well, on some level, we're all interconnected. But what we're seeing is that's not just a, on some level, that we really are in a measurable way interacting with and interconnected with the earth in a, in a very profound and fundamental way. And most likely sharing information globally, um, and again, unconsciously, because we're connected to the global field. So what I would suggest this means is that what we feel and what our thoughts and especially feelings that aren't just contained within us. We know they, they radiate and can be measured in, the, in our personal field environment, magnetic field, but most likely they're also a, a communicated globally. So we have, which I think helps a lot of people understand when they really get this, it helps motivate them to take more responsibility for what they're feeding the field. And that, that's what I really, after my, when I talk about these kind of things at conferences and different things, so I really ask the people to consider, maybe take a pause a few times a day and really ask yourself, what am I feeding the field, right? How much of it is really kindness, 
and appreciation, you know, these types of feel, uh, feelings that I'm feeding the field versus, you know, your impatience and frustration and all feelings of overwhelm and so on, because it all counts and it all kind of contributes to this giant global information field that really affects all living systems that live within the big field because, you know, all plants, animals, trees, and everything is all in that, within that larger magnetic field. We can't escape it. I think that's, I think that's huge. I mean, it's really huge. I mean, you've only got to look at the world around us today to, to maybe think that we're not sending out very good stuff into the field. <laughs> so, yeah, but um, as, as, well, coherence organizes noise. So as right. more and more people become more self-responsible for what they're feeding the field and we put coherence puts a stronger signal into the field environment, right. which helps lift others and helps them wake up. Right. Right. Sorry about that. So. No problem. No problem. So I can see that our time is, is almost up. Oh, I'm devastated because I have a pile of questions. I'll just have to have you back, Roland, another time when you maybe. We can do that. I'd love to do that. Um, I have three little questions that I always ask all of my guests, and I'd love to know your answers. Um, so. London Heal is really primarily about mind, body, spirit, medicine, and approaches to health. So I like to embody that in the words of um, health, happiness, and serenity. So how do you personally define health? What does that word mean for you? Health? Well, I think health is, um, a lot of people, when we say health, they just think physical. And of course, that's an important part, but to me, really, wholeness health is, is when our, um, it, I would say the same four domains of resilience, when our, our mental health, emotional health, spiritual health, and physical health are all really aligned and, and um, well, not just aligned, but, but uh, um, so I think wholeness, wholeness healing really has to do with that. And a lot of people, when we, we don't talk a lot about healing because it's, the, the real healing for a lot of people is oftentimes more mentally and emotionally than physically. Uh, that's, that's the most important thing. And I think learning to, to connect with the intelligence of the heart, which is a topic we didn't have time to talk. Maybe that could be our next topic. Oh, I'd love that. <laughs> um, is really what brings in wholeness um, health as we align with a deeper part of who we really are. Even if we have a physical problem that may not be healed Right. It's the mental emotional can be far more important sometimes for people and making peace with what is. Right. Right. So. Great answer. And happiness. What does what does Roland do to get happy? And do uh, you even think the pursuit of happiness is something important? Well, I I think for people, I, I don't necessarily think that way. It's not like I wake up in the morning going, what can I do to be happy? Um, I just think that's a natural consequence of really living in alignment with your own deeper heart's intelligence and intuitive guidance because uh, when we're really aligned with our deeper core of who we really are at a deeper level that happiness is the natural um, outplay of that right and the last one is a no-brainer or a no-hearter for you <laughs> which is serenity so um heart coherence of course is one of the best ways uh to to turn down the noise of of the outside world are there other practices that you personally undertake in order to do that well, well I, I think i just try for me to live in alignment again it's the same answer with my own inner guidance system um 
as much as possible and uh, go with that. You know? Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, I will be definitely writing you emails and trying to book another session with you so we can talk about the intelligence of the heart because I think that's a whole subject by itself, totally fascinating and really important. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. My, my pleasure. And good day to all of your listeners. Thank you. Well, dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did um, with Roland. We're definitely going to have to get him back and start talking more about the intelligence of the heart. As you can see, the heart is perhaps a very underestimated organ. We've talked traditionally for years, we always talk about the emotions that you, from the bottom of your heart and so on and so forth. And maybe today's conversation has actually made it clear that it's not just a way of speaking and it's um it, but it's a really genuine thing that your emotions and your ability to actually regulate those emotions has extremely powerful implications on the rest of your physiology and the heart is a major player in all of that the other thing that I really want to mention at this point is that um, even though London Heal goes out of our way to stay independent, objective, we, and that's why we never have any kind of advertising, I am very happy to announce to all of you that if you are interested in getting any of the heart math um, instruments. Uh, there are some personal instruments that you can use to monitor heart rate variability and teach yourself some of these techniques. Um, there are also more professional level equipment in order to be able to help therapists, for example, measure heart rate variability and get feedback because it's so much easier to really understand and embody these techniques when you're getting real-time feedback. There's also all of the heart math um, programs and products. Um, HeartMath UK has been very kind and has given a code, uh, it's London Heal, for any purchases made at the HeartMath UK website. Now, not the American website, but you have to go to heartmath.co.uk. If you have a look at the show notes, we'll put all those details in there so you have access to those. We're not affiliated we don't get any kind of benefit from that, but it's a gift from HeartMath to you, for which I am extremely grateful. And so, um, in addition to that, as always, I ask you, please go over to iTunes and uh, subscribe to our podcast. Also, please rate and review us and pass on this information to anyone that you think that could really benefit from it. So please share shamelessly. Same applies for um, our Facebook site. Please go over to our Facebook page at London Heal and like the page and you are welcome to share any of the podcast uh, posts that we have there or any other posts and become part of our community. We'd love to see more of you. Please comment and let us have some feedback over there. That would be absolutely great. And the last thing, of course, is if you want extended show notes for any upcoming episodes, then please go over to londonheal.com and become a London Heal Insider. Just sign up. It's a simple um, email will pop into your inbox with future episodes with all of the links to the relevant episode and extended show notes so that you don't have to listen 
with a pencil and paper. So my dear listeners, that just leaves me to wish you, as always, health, happiness, and serenity.